Before we jump into the text, uh, we're going to do what we do every Sunday. We're going to talk to our young ones here, let them know what the sermon text is going to be about, what the sermon's going to be about. So I want to start with the kids. So young ones, let me, let me grab your attention. I want you to imagine something. Okay, Halloween's coming up. This is that kind of time of year. Imagine you are on a pirate ship, okay? You're on a pirate ship, and you're one of the pirates. You're, you're one of those good pirates, you know, okay. So you're, and you're out at sea. You're out at sea, and you've got all these shipmates, these pirate buddies of yours, and you all just love each other. You all are, are great friends, but your captain, the pirate captain, he's the worst. He is the worst. He's this huge bully. He's, he's twice the size of everyone else on the ship. So, you know, you'll be, you'll be out on the, the deck of the ship, and things are going okay, the day's going okay, and then you hear the captain coming. And the captain comes along, and he sees you, and he just knocks you down. He just hits you, and he starts kicking you. And he's like, you, grab that mop and squab the deck, or swab the deck, whatever it's called. Mop the deck. And, you, and you're looking at him, you're like, oh, okay, okay. And you, you, there's nothing you can do except mop that that deck of the ship and you start doing it and you, you know the next day the same thing and you know you'll, you'll be walking along and out of nowhere he'll whip you or, or something beat you with a stick he's the worst and everybody hates the captain but you can't do anything until one day one day a ship shows up out of nowhere comes out another ship comes out of nowhere you don't even have time to fire your cannons at this other ship pulls up right next to you and on jumps another captain let's just call him Jesus uh, and this captain jumps onto the ship and he's twice the size of the bad captain and he grabs that captain and he beats that captain down the bad captain and then he puts him in chains and he, and he shackles him up and he throws him in a corner and he looks at all the other pirates all the all your friends you and he says guys girls you're free i'm a good captain and i am going to lead y'all and i'm going to serve y'all i'm going to take care of y'all you are free Let's celebrate. And everyone's woo! And everyone, and you're celebrating, and everyone's having such an awesome time. Best day of your life ever. And, and the captain looks at you in the middle of the celebration, everyone's like, well, what are we gonna do with the bad captain? And, and this Jesus captain says, well, I could just kill him right now, but I'm not going to. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna leave him chained up right here. And the next time we make for port, next time we get to land, we're gonna throw him in jail forever, okay? And was like, sounds great. Next day. Next day, you're out on the ship deck, and you're enjoying the sun. You're playing some volleyball with your friends on the ship. Uh, and, and all of a sudden, the captain in the corner sees you, and he says, Hey, you, grab that mop, and you mop this deck right now. And, you, and you're just, you know, just out of instinct, you're like, oh, oh, and you grab a mop, and you start mopping again, and he's yelling at you, and you're all afraid. And then Jesus comes along. He says, what, what are you doing? You don't have to listen to that old captain. He's not in charge of you anymore. He's done. I'm in charge of you. And I tell you, you're free. So be free. Y'all, that, kids, that is what Jesus and his salvation and what we call kind of our Christian freedom, that's what it looks like. Is that right now, because of Jesus, you are saved and you are free. Uh, you are free so that you do not have to work to earn God's love. Like when you mess up, kids, and you are going to mess up, you're gonna mess up every day, and you're gonna feel like, oh, I'm just the worst, I'm so bad, I, you know, God's gonna be so mad at me, and he's, you know, he's gonna punish me, or he's gonna curse me, maybe send me to hell, I don't know. That is not true. Jesus loves you so much 
Even when you screw up, he loves you so much and he has saved you, not because of anything you've done, not because of anything you will do, no matter how hard you work. He loves you because he loves you and he has saved you because of Jesus, because Jesus lived for you and died for you to set you free. Now, this is also what this means. Last thing, because you're free, you're also free from your, your sin. You're free from the bad stuff in your life. As in, you don't have to give yourself to that bad stuff. You're actually freed by Jesus in order to love Jesus and to love others. We're going to try and make sense of that today, okay? We're going to try and make sense of that today uh, in our sermon text. Uh, Jesus' great love for us, that he has freed us to live the way he wants us to live. We won't do it perfectly, but now we can do it. That's the Christian life of freedom. We are in 1 Corinthians. Loved ones, everyone, Paul is dealing with these divisions in the church at Corinth. Uh, he planted that church in Corinth. He's heard about all this, you know, fighting, infighting that's going on now in the church. So he's writing back, and it's a super applicable letter because he just goes through like, man, y'all are doing this. Let me talk, to, talk about that. Man, you got this going on. Let me speak into that. So uh, here's, we're going to do three chapters today. We're going to kind of take 8, 9, and 10 together because 8, 9, and 10 is really one passage about this division over what Christian freedom is. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Turn to God's word here. There we go. All right. This is in chapter 8. Paul says, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Then moving ahead into chapter 19, he says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And then moving ahead to chapter 10, as he's bringing this to a close, Paul says, quote, all things are lawful, okay, but not all things are helpful. Quote, all things are lawful, hey, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of your conscience. I do not mean, sorry, and for the sake of conscience, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. 
So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The word of the Lord. <clears throat> Please be seated. So <clears throat> this is how this, pa- this whole passage opens up. It opens up with Paul saying, okay, now, here's next dispute let's talk about. Now, concerning food offered, sacrificed, offered to idols. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about food sacrificed to idols. When Ryan and I were newlyweds, <clears throat> we had some friends over for dinner. Live in another town. Uh, this was one of our first times to host uh, another couple for dinner. It was so fun. Uh, and they were also newlyweds. Ryan prepared this amazing dinner. She goes all out. Uh, the table is set beautifully. The apartment is clean. We are dressed fashionable, fashionably casual chic. Uh, we're looking good. Our friends arrive on time. Uh, we sit down to dinner. And I stick my fork uh, in that first bite, and I'm about to eat. And my friend stops us, uh, somewhat feeling somewhat slighted, obviously. And he says, <clears throat> could we pray for the meal so that we're not eating food sacrificed to idols? And he meant it. And it was awkward. Uh, and I'd heard him reference, <clears throat> I heard him reference that in another context, and I knew enough about the Bible at that point in my life to know then, in the words of Inigo Montoya, uh, you keep using that word, and I do not think it means what you think it means. <clears throat> I didn't say that to him. I thought it. What I did say to him was, sure, I'll pray. And I prayed. Okay, now here's, <laughs> here's, what, here's what that does mean. In ancient Corinth, you could do your grocery shopping at the local market, at the marketplace. You could buy your meat directly from the vendor, but buying directly from the vendor was pretty expensive. That was pretty pricey. You had another option, though. You could also go to the temple, one of the pagan temples, and you you could go around back to the back of the temple, and you could buy the meat that had been used in sacrifices earlier in the day, in the leftover meat, the meat that wasn't used in the sacrifices. Here you go, you could buy that meat. It was cheaper, <clears throat> still great cuts of meat. Go buy your meat there, and, uh, and it, it, that's your, you know, your meat shopping for the day. Well, you, you could also go into the temple, the pagan temple. You could go in there because they had dining rooms. Those temples, some of these temples were so big that they, they were like restaurants. You could go, you could order dinner. You did business, just like business meetings, go for a birthday party. You know, uh, go just because you don't feel like cooking that day. Go meet some friends and, and have dinner. The temple was a, uh, a spot for that. Okay, uh, and, and, and here's, the, here's the problem. Uh, Paul tells us that there are Corinthian Christians who were formerly pagans who did have a big problem with this. There are some Corinthian Christians, formerly pagans, that had no problem with this. Their consciences were free as in like, <clears throat> yeah, man, I can still go buy that meat. Yeah, I know they say it's sacrificed to idols, but now I know that stuff is not real. I know that there is only one God and Jesus is his son. I'm, whatever they call it, I just need some meat and it's, it's economic. So I'm going to go and get my meat there because it's, it, it's like another market. What's the big deal? The big deal was there are other Corinthian Christians who had a big problem with it because it is so close to their, their, their former way of life 
that they just could not imagine going and being a part of that going and buying meat that had once been offered up. They couldn't go to those restaurants in the temples. They even had a problem going over to their friend's house if they heard, if they found out that what they were serving had been bought at the temple. And there's no explicit, there is no explicit Old Testament law prohibiting this. There's no New Testament law, but there's no old, like you might think like, well, isn't that probably in the Leviticus? No, it's not. Uh, there are a couple references in Exodus and Deuteronomy about, hey, do not go to pagan festivals where, like, eating there is part of the worship service. It's not like, don't go do that. But not, not about something like this. So y- you have to know, too, that the Corinthian Jews are also taking sides here. Like, it's okay, it's not okay. Meat offered to sacrifice to idols. Paul says, listen, it's cool either way. However you're thinking about this, it's cool. It's fine. Like, you are free to eat, and you're free not to eat this stuff. But this is where the division comes in. The two groups in the church, they start going at each other. So, so those with what Paul refers to as the weaker consciences, those who have a big problem with this, they are convicted that those who are eating this stuff, they're compromising with the world. Like, it's not okay. Well, those with strong, you know, the stronger consciences, now they're feeling judged by others in the church. Uh, they're feeling uh, uh, judged, that, that, and now this, this other group is imposing their legalism. They're restricting our freedom, needlessly withdrawing from, you know, non-Christians in the world, the ones we're supposed to be out and about loving, sharing the gospel with. And even worse, there's the division worse. Paul says, he alludes to that, there are some of the strong believers who are, pr- who are so pressuring the weaker conscience, brothers and sisters, uh, pressuring them so much to violate their consciences and eat this stuff, even though they don't really want to do it. And they're not doing it out of malice. They're doing it because they think, this is going to help you grow up. Take a bite. Eat. And Paul says to all this, Paul says, in short, stop it. And now here's the thing, like, what does that have to do with us today? Listen, the, the, this is why he spends three chapters on this. The question about food, sacrifice to idols, is a question about Christian freedom. It's a question about our behavior and what we do in situations that just are not expressly addressed in the Bible. How much freedom do I have with things the Bible does not expressly forbid and does not expressly command? One side of the dispute, I should kind of make it relevant to us, one side of the dispute is concerned over the abuse of Christian freedom that we can call license. So on one end of the spectrum, we've got this problem, this abuse of Christian freedom license. Here's the extreme version of this. You know, live however you want to live and do whatever you want to do, when you want to do it, with whomever you want to do it. Like you are free. The one rule, there are no rules. Let your conscience be your guide. That's what y'all are saying, and that's a genuine concern. Y'all remember Jiminy Cricket? He tells Pinocchio, always let your conscience be your guide. He's saying that to a kid who just gained consciousness. That's what the blue fairy tells Pinocchio two minutes after he has come to life. Uh, Blue Fairy says, you must learn to choose between right and wrong. And Pinocchio looks at her with that blank expression and says, right and wrong? Well, how will I know? And Blue Fairy, (laughs) your conscience will tell you. 
Listen, I don't know if Pinocchio was like Adam in the garden uh, before the fall, created with a conscience, knowing right and wrong, having been made in the image of God. I don't think that's what the Disney animators are thinking. Maybe. I don't know. But that is terrible advice for you and for me. I love Disney. That is how serial killers walk around all day. Let your conscience be your God. It's like, yes, the point, yes, the point is Christian freedom, and, and, it, and the point is about matters of conscience, matters of conscience that, that are qualified by the truth of the gospel. As in the thing, always let your conscience be your guide. No, 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 qualify that. But that unqualified license, it does get into the church, and it gets into the church really easily. And Paul's already addressed this, this like we've heard this quote before, this libertine kind of anarchic uh, uh, license. Here it is again in chapter 10, verse 23. He's quoting what they're saying back to him. Hey, all things are lawful. And Paul says, no, like not all things are good. And in the church, in the church today, you hear this kind of stuff. Sometimes it's, just, it's that seemingly harmless stuff of, hey, don't you know we're free? Free in Jesus. Totally unqualified. To the very, very common modus operandi in most, you know, especially Reformed Christian circles, this kind of consciousness, it says, <clears throat> I am forgiven all my sins, past, present, and future. Thank God I have a forgiving God. Our relationship really works. He likes to forgive, and I like to sin. It's okay. To the very, very blatant rhetoric uh, of how this makes its way into the churches, that, that stuff of just throw out that black and white absolutism stuff. Like, let's accept everyone for who they are. What matters is that you're a good person. And the only real sin is to ever criticize someone's choices for how they choose to live their life. Okay, that, that right there, that's a message of salvation too that we need to be saved from the idea of sin. We need to be saved from the idea of salvation. We need to be redeemed from this idea of redemption. The only sin is to say that there is sin. And there are all kinds of forms of this kind of quote-unquote good news in the world that has made its way into the church. <clears throat> the other side of the dispute is concerned with another abuse of Christian freedom we can call legalism. As in legalism is that thing, one side is saying to the other one, you dude, this is legalism. You know, legalism is that approach to the Christian life <clears throat> that has a rule for every occasion. There's a rule for every situation. There's a rule for every issue. Just follow the rules. How are we going to be free and do this life right? You come up with a list of do's and don'ts. You get your rules, and we will get this sin thing under control. We'll get this suffering thing under control by avoiding doing all that bad stuff that always leads to suffering. And, and of course, too, the, your list of do's and don'ts, it, it always depends on who's coming up with the list. It's always different, depending on where you are, who you're talking to. <clears throat> but <clears throat> the point is, your spirituality, your freedom is measured according to this legalistic abuse of freedom. Do you measure up? That is, to, that is also a genuine concern. So both sides have genuine concerns. Legalism has also made its way into the church. 
in responses to to the persecution that the Jews have suffered over the past few hundred years, at at this time, they have developed a real hatred for Gentiles. And you start to see this stuff in the Jewish writings, not in the Old Testament, but in the Mishnah and other Jewish writings that just contact with Gentiles, it's prohibited. That is not in the Old Testament. Even physical contact with a Gentile will make you unceremonially clean, unclean. Now, the Old Testament. The Old Testament, the New Testament. The law. What we want to make really clear is the law is not bad. But the point of the law is not some means of grace. It's the law, Old Testament law, New Testament law. The law is not a means of grace that restrains your sin. It is not. It's not the the point of it. Excuse me. The law does not cause you to be more holy. It doesn't. That is not biblical. What it does is it it defines the obedience that God requires of us. And then it exposes our disobedience and how far we fall. How we fail to measure up to that law and it convicts us of our need of a Savior. Now this legalism that, that we're talking about here, let's get really technical. It's nomism. It's this thing called nomism, where you can get holy by the law. It's holiness by the law. Well, think of Buddhism. Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, all the religions of the world, they have all these ideas that if you do these things and you don't touch, you don't handle certain things that would defile you, if you treat your body in a certain way, harsh, rigorous, strict, self-controlled, disciplined way, and you fight against the flesh, and you fight against sin, then you will somehow overcome it. And Paul says, listen, that stuff seems to have the appearance of wisdom. It seems like it's a good thing to do. Uh, Not if you think that's what's going to make you holy. Not if you think that's what's going to restrain your sin. There's a show that I've not talked about in months. It's It's called The Office. Um, maybe you've heard it. Okay. <clears throat> Michael Scott is the regional man- manager of Dunder Mifflin Paper Company. And one day, I mean, he's, he's the inept but lovable manager. Uh, one day he's procrastinating. He's always procrastinating. He's procrastinating. Uh, this time is Michael the Magic. That's his magician alter ego. And so, and so he's, he's ready to do his magic show for the office and gathers all the employees around. <clears throat> and he, he does this thing where behind the... Uh, the receptionist says he comes up as Michael the Magic and he's saying, Magic, 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 magic. And he's wearing a straight jacket with chains around it. <clears throat> and, and, and it's clear that he's got the key to the chains in his mouth. He's hiding it like in his lip. It's really clear. But he, he says, Magic, magic, magic. And now Michael the Magic will attempt to escape from extreme bondage. Can he do it? I don't see how he can. And, you know, and people start like, Well, you're going to. And Jim says, Sorry, wait, quick thing. Is it true that if you can't get out, you don't want anyone to help you. And Mike says, I will get out. Oh, yes, I will. And, and Pam says, okay, wait, wait. So we shouldn't help you no matter how much you might beg and plead. And, and Michael's getting, he's like, no, no, okay, no. All right, let, let's just, this is getting hot. So let's just do this, okay? Ready, go. And he starts, you know, wiggling around. He's got the keys, trying to get the key in his mouth. And he's, you know, trying to hide it. And it, and it drops and it, and, it, and it, you know, rolls off. And Jim sees it and Jim just puts his foot over it. Michael doesn't know it. Now Michael is, he's totally stuck. 
and, and there he is for the rest of the day, stuck in, uh, in the straitjacket. And in this, I think, that is, that is the picture of legalism. That is what legalism is. It's this willingness to get into a straitjacket again and chain yourself up. And you think you're the only one that's being affected by it, but obviously Michael's procrastination, he's taking everyone away from what they're supposed to be doing too. Like legalism is this terrible thing, just as bad as license stuff. And this is Paul's big point. The issue of freedom is not just a personal matter. It has to do with everyone else too. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 9 says, Take care that this right of yours, your Christian freedom, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And we didn't read these verses, but the next couple verses, 11 and 12, it says, And so, by your knowledge, this weak person, like by your knowledge and what you're doing and how you're abusing your Christian freedom, the weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Loved ones, the people sitting around you, like you look around you, these are your brothers and sisters here. Each person, this is the one for whom Jesus died. Which means every single person in here is of utmost importance to Jesus. And they should be to us too. Christian freedom, it can't be some kind of freedom to do whatever you want to do to your brothers and sisters. One commentator puts it like this. He says, Paul clearly wants such a weak person as this to grow into a strong position. Yet, you will notice that he does not attempt to persuade the person into such a position of strength. This Paul's not looking at the weak people and, and shaming them like, God, get over it. Come on. That's not what he's doing. No. Instead, Paul's stress falls on the strong person who has been freed from human conventions, who's been freed from human shibboleths, you know, those catchy cliche slogans and mottos of how we should live. Uh, They've been freed from that. And to the strong person, Paul says, you must voluntarily restrict your freedom to help the weak, not the reverse. Now that does raise the obvious question that most of you are probably thinking right now. Wait a second. Okay, wait wait, wait a second. How, How are we going to make progress toward maturity? How are we going to grow if, if every time we try to do something, somebody has some suspicion, somebody comes with some reservation, somebody comes with some problem, like, <clears throat> sorry, y'all, mm, I can't do that. How are we going to get anything done? How are we ever going to get together? How are we ever going to be together and talk about anything if we're always beholden to the weakest link? Well, here, this is where John Calvin, uh, reformed uh, theologian, uh, he is helpful here. He discriminates between those with genuine concerns and those whom he calls uh, tough giants. This is from another pastor who found this in one of his writings. Calvin says, tough giants who want to play the tyrant and put our freedom under their control. These individuals are not being led into sin by weakness, they are simply eager to find fault with others. You need to watch out for them. So how do you make that distinction between someone who has a genuine concern and someone who is just trying to manipulate the family? It takes spiritual wisdom. 
It takes an understanding of what Christian freedom is not and then what it is on the part of the leadership and a part of all the people. It's not, you know, what, what is Paul talking about here? Uh, it's not freedom from, like, we're not talking about freedom from financial stress and difficulty. We're not talking about freedom from, you know, government restraint and restriction. If, I, if only the government would get out of my business, everything would be okay. That's the freedom I need. It's not talking, it's not freedom for license. It's not freedom for legalism. Those are slave masters barking orders at you. As in, hey, your name, it's everything. You'd better make that deal. Your grade, kids, your grades are everything. That's not true, but that's what we hear. And we might even say that. Uh, you're, you know, we hear this thing of your success is everything. That new house is everything. Your health is everything. Your body is everything. Your comfort is everything. You had such a hard work day. You deserve a night of indulgence, unrestrained pleasure. And you feel the need to obey because those things are not freedom. And they're trying to enslave you. This thing in verse 21 uh, is not a throwaway reference that we read. Uh, like Paul, we are not under the law given to Israel. We are under the law of Christ. It's a big thing. Let me tell you what that most basically means is Christian freedom is now found in bondage to Jesus Christ. I mean, this is how Peter and this is how Paul like to introduce themselves in their letters. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Peter, a slave of Christ Jesus. At the beginning of 1 Corinthians, when Paul is talking about, the, you know, this is one of the big disputes that the Corinthians are, you know, having it out over, is who's our favorite minister? Like, and who's going to make us most relevant to the, the, the culture of Corinth? Is it Paul? Is it Apollos? Is it, you know, this guy, this guy? And, and this is how Paul responds. He says, listen, what is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. Okay, what is Christian freedom? Like, what does that look like practically? The so what? I think it's there in 11 verse 1, which is this great transition uh, verse. We're going to see that it has everything to do that's come, that's come uh, before, and it's going to have everything to do that, that comes after. Uh, it, it says this, Paul uh, has just said this, everything uh, to do with imitation of Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Which is, it's, like, what is he saying there? What is the example? Be imitators of me. What's the example he's just given us? Hey, what am I supposed to imitate? Well, right here, right before this, this is what he says. I'm not seeking my own advantage. I'm not seeking my own good. I'm all about the good of the many, that they may be saved. That's the example summed up this way. It's selflessness selflessness for the sake of the salvation of others and Paul is telling the Corinthians and he's telling us to follow his example that we would be selfless that's what Christian freedom looks like that what we do in the church and what we do in our relationships with other Christians what we do in our relationships with people who are not Christians is driven by selflessness for the sake of nothing less than the salvation of others. That's to imitate Paul, and to imitate Paul is to imitate Jesus Christ. And this is how Paul compares the depth, like what's the depth of this conviction he has about this Christian freedom? Uh, he says it's like training like an athlete. 
lives and the depth of the, like, how committed is he to this? It's like training uh, as an athlete. Like serious, serious athletes train seriously. Tom Brady, you may hate him. He is the, uh, he's the greatest quarterback of all time. He's played 20 seasons of, prof- 20 seasons of professional football and he's been to su- the Super Bowl 10 times. Half his seasons, he's been to the Super Bowl, and he's won seven of those. And most recently, last year, he's the reigning Super Bowl champ. The dude is 43 years old. And he, how does he do it? He trains. He has his own, he has his own training method that he calls the TB12 method. TB, Tom Brady, number 12. T, and like every serious athlete training program, it's nuts. Like it's crazy. Think of every Rocky training montage. That's what Paul is talking about. Like Paul says his Christian freedom, what is that? Ooh, Christian freedom, that sounds awesome. What's it look like? Training. Athletic training, being a super serious athlete. And then that begs it like, wait, what? Like why would you do that with your freedom? Like what's the motivation? What put your, like, Tom, why do you put yourself through that? Paul, why do you put yourself through that? There are different answers there. <laughs> for the Like, Paul, why do you put yourself through that? Like, you're free. And Paul says, I, I am. I am free. And my freedom is for others. So I don't make anyone stumble. And I don't abuse those weaker than me. That I might win those who are trapped in legalism. That I might win those who, tra- who are trapped in license. All for the sake of the gospel. That's why I'm free, and and I wield my freedom in every way possible that my brothers and my sisters are pushed closer to Jesus and closer to others. I wield my freedom in every possible way that those who are perishing in the dark, that those who don't know Jesus, that those who are unaware of their impending doom, who are enslaved to their sin, I I live this life for them that they might be free and saved forever by the gospel of freedom. This is the uh, uh, Oscar, this guy, Oscar Schindler, uh, who was a German industrialist, and he was a member of the Nazi party during World War II. And he saved the lives uh, of some 1,200 Jews during the Holocaust. And he did it by employing them in his factories, his enamelware and ammunitions factories. And he did this in occupied Poland, and he did this in uh, the, the Bohemia, the, the protectorates of Bohemia and Moravia. And he did it by bribing German officers, constantly paying off officers and soldiers. So there's this historical drama based on his life called Schindler's List. And the movie ends, the movie ends with Schindler, and he's, he's now fleeing to the West uh, after he has secured his workers' safety. And he's surrounded by all of them. They're all there, and they're all telling them just how grateful they are, how much they love him. And he looks at them, and this is what he says. He says, he, he, he's looking around at all, and he says, I could have got more. Oh, I could have got more. Like this car. The Germans would have bought this car. Why did I keep the car? Ten people right there. Ten people. Ten more people. This pin, he holds up his pin. This pin, two people. This is gold. Two people. They would have given me two more, at, at least one. One more person, a person for this. And he starts, he starts weeping. 
I could have got one more person, and I didn't. I didn't. I, 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 I didn't. And they just, they just collapse on him, crying with him, telling him how much they love him. Like Schindler, after him, Paul used his freedom. Chapter 9, verse 19, Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more, more of them. All that Paul is saying here, all that he's saying here, he says very, very explicitly and succinctly in another letter in Romans, chapter 9, verse 3, he says this, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Jesus for the sake of those who don't know Jesus. As in, he's saying, I love Jesus more than anything, and his love and his grace is everything to me. Jesus is everything to me. And knowing his love and knowing his grace, I want my loved ones to know his love, and I want strangers who don't know this love to know his love so much that I would be willing to trade places with them I'd be willing to give up Jesus and take their torment to give them Jesus. And listen, I know, I know that you know someone like that in your life. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it is a parent. Maybe it's a, a, a child, a spouse, a loved one who you love so much you would die a thousand deaths every day that they would know joy. You would literally take their hell if it meant they would have Jesus. Paul has that desire for everyone, for other Christians that he would never, ever push them away from Jesus, but always draw them closer. He has that desire for those who are not Christians that he would never drive them off, but draw them to Jesus. And Paul says that we should imitate him as he imitates our Savior and Lord. Here's the thing Paul says. Paul says our freedom is really, really real because of Jesus. Jesus said, this is what we said, this is what we, our assurance of pardon. Jesus said this, the truth will set you free. And Jesus was talking about the truth about him. And that verse today, it's on government buildings. Maybe not much longer. I don't know. It's on university buildings. Maybe not much longer. I don't know. It, but it's so well known now. The truth will set you free. Uh, it's so well known. Uh, it's become so familiar. It's lost all its bite. What Jesus says there, what Paul is saying here, that Christians are free, that is offensive. And the original hearers were offended by it because they got what they were saying. If the truth will set you free then you're not free. Without the truth, you're a slave. Christian freedom is offensive because it's real. As in, Jesus lived that I might live, and he lived a perfect life of obedience, fulfilling the law and, and, and fulfilling all righteousness, and he did it for me in my place because I will never do it. He died that I might never die, not that cursed death of hell. He died on the cross taking my penalty. He obeyed that his righteousness covers my disobedience. It covers my unrighteousness. The wrath, the curse of God for my sin, all that I deserve, has been met. It's been paid in full in the person of Christ at the cross. So, end with this. At the cross, our willingness to compromise through license is put down. 
at the cross, our desire to control ourselves and others through legalism is put down. At the cross, my self-centered obsessions, they're overcome. And I stand before a great Savior, a saved sinner. Then at the cross, I am compelled by the love and the grace of my Savior to bend the knee and call him Lord, and I am free. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of freedom that is accomplished in the work of your son becoming a servant, a servant even unto death in our place. Through his sacrifice, we were free. We pray that you would uh, bless us to know our freedom and to understand our freedom and that we would use it to bless each other, those that are here, those that aren't here, rather than abuse. Give us Jesus Christ. Give us that grace. Direct our eyes to him, to see him alive, uh, leading us as our, as our wonderful Lord. We pray this in his name. Amen.